Welcome to this week's message from Mountain Park Church. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we hope that as you listen to today's message, you feel challenged and inspired to give God more room to work in your life this week. As we look into what the Bible says about heaven and the afterlife, and and I, I mentioned to you that I've just been reflecting over the last few weeks on um, everything that's going on in our world today and on my own, own life and, and just realizing, even for, my, for myself, I, I needed to, to, to kind of hit the refresh button a little bit as it pertains to my, my passion and my understanding for what's coming next, for what's coming after I die and after you die. And I think so often we, we grow up and we have these contorted and these mixed perspectives of what heaven's like. It's a little bit of a sort of TV heaven and the Philadelphia commercials and Michael Landon mixed in there with a little bit of the Bible and a little bit of the stories we would read as kids. And, and all of that combines to form this really confused and vague understanding of, of what's coming next. And we talked about the fact that when the Apostle John wrote the last book of the Bible, when he wrote Revelation, I really believe that, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that and God gave him the visions that he, he did because he knew on a practical level that, that the first Christians, the first century believers who were being heavily oppressed in state-sanctioned persecution, being burned at the stake, dipped in uh, vats of oil, being killed on cross, cross by the thousands. God knew that they would need a supernatural source of hope, that they wouldn't be able to walk through what he was calling them to walk through unless they knew what was, what was coming next. And somehow we've lost and we've forgotten and we've, we've misconstrued what God has for us next. And, and we read that verse in 1 Corinthians 2 that says, No eye has seen, no ear uh, has heard, and no mind, mind can stand, and no heart can know. And we go, well, of course, of course, God says that we're not to know. But we forget the second part of that verse that says, but the Holy Spirit has revealed it to us. That he's revealed the deep things of the kingdom of God to us. Why? to give us the strength we need to walk through the things that are in front of us. And I don't know about you, but it just takes two minutes on the TV or on your social media feed to realize that our world seems to be spiraling out of control. I was at a conference last night. I was playing guitar for this conference, and one of the speakers was... was uh, um, a refugee frack, and he actually was imprisoned there in Iraq and escaped prison. And, and get this, he escaped, and I don't know how he got it, he didn't fill in this information, but he, he actually got on a jet ski and he, he fled via the ocean. And he actually fled directly between an Israeli and an Egyptian warship, and he went right between them because he figured that was the safest place to go because they didn't want to start firing at each other and start something that they didn't want to finish. So he, he fled right between them. But this man lives right now. He's got an organization in Canada that works in ISIS-controlled territory to bring people out of persecution. So this, so this man works regularly in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in Syria. He's over there 
with the people of God who are being persecuted, tortured, and killed, killed every day. Those are the people, we're the people that need a concrete and a solid hope for the future. I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone grows up and when they're young and, and, and grow up and their, their, their life's mission and their purpose and goal is to become a disembodied spirit ghost one day. Unless you're like really big into Casper, Casper was great. I mean, he was a friendly ghost, he was a nice boy, a nice ghost. But nobody grows up and says, one day, for eternity, I want to be a disembodied spirit ghost thing that just floats around nothingness forever. Nobody thinks that. God has implanted a vision and a purpose and a drive deep inside every one of us, a unique one that he's calling us to fulfill, not just on this earth, but on the recreated earth that we will one day live in. You know, growing up, listening to some hymns and gospel songs, they, I would hear things occasionally that said, you know, this earth is not my home, I'm just passing through. And that's, that's not good, not good theology. It's actually not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says that we were created for this earth, that this earth actually is our home and we're not just passing through, that what we do, do on this earth today has implications and ripple effects for eternity, and that God has wired us and created us for a divine purpose. But if we believe that somehow we die, we're not going to be ourselves and we're just going to be these disembodied, nebulous spirits floating around in Lord knows where, doing Lord knows what, what hope is that to look forward to? I think the idea, I love music, I I love it and I love worship. But this idea that I had growing up that that heaven was just a, you know, you go through the pearly gates and you get your choir robe and you stand in your, you know, soprano, alto, alt, tenor, bass section, and you just sing for eternity. That's dreadful. That's awful. I don't care if Greg is beside me or not. That's awful. It just is. And so the enemy in, in Revelation 13, it says that the enemy has come to do three things. He's come to blaspheme and discredit God. He's come to blaspheme and lie and discredit us. And he's come to blaspheme and discredit God's kingdom, the kingdom that is awaiting us, that God has prepared for us. And so last week, we took a look at what theologians and scholars call the intermediate heaven, the present heaven. And that's, that's the place where we go as believers when we die today. But the present heaven isn't the final heaven. The Bible doesn't talk about it like that. The present or the intermediate heaven is where believers go when they die today. And conversely, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, hell on the other end of of evasion. We talked about some of the things that the Bible does say and alludes to as it makes reference to the present heaven or the intermediate heaven. And we talked about in Revelation 6, we, we talked about uh, the martyrs under the throne and that 
these martyrs understand that they were killed for their faith. They, they actually remember how they died and who they were. So there must be some kind of continuity between this life and the next one. Or else you wouldn't know that you were killed for your faith and you wouldn't know what happened. So there must be some continuity between, between what we experience here and what, what we will experience for eternity. And we discovered that, that the martyrs are, are asking God, how long before you avenge what's happened to us? How long before you bring justice and make things right? And so there must be some kind of time in heaven. Heaven is not the absence of time and space and all of that kind of thing. The martyrs knew that justice hadn't been brought, and they were asking Jesus time-sensitive questions. They cried out together, implying they had emotion and thought and intellect. And they were asking God questions, implying that we don't know and we will not know everything in heaven. The heaven will know probably much more than we do now because we'll be able to see and connect with Jesus face to face. But when we get to heaven, we're not just going to automatically know everything. Only God knows everything. It's discovered that the Bible has a lot more to say about the present heaven than we think sometimes. We discovered that, you know, it says in Revelation that the, these martyrs were given white robes. We don't give a robe, robe disembodied spirit. And we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus and, and the prophets, Elijah and Moses, that he met. They came in bodily form and they talked about what was going to take place. So these prophets that had been dead for for hundreds of years, we're talking to Jesus about what was currently taking place on the earth. We talked about this reality that, that there's, there's a good argument to make from the Bible. The people that are in heaven right now, now are aware of what's happening on the earth. You know, there's this, this one famous verse that, that says, you know, when one sinner comes to God, there's rejoicing. And we, we often say and think rejoicing by the angels of heaven, but it doesn't say that. It says there's rejoicing in the presence of angels when a person gives their life to Christ. So if it's rejoicing in the presence of angels, then it must be somebody else doing, doing the rejoicing. Paul talks about it this way. He said it's like, you know, the Colosseum, this, this, this grand game, and it's like the stands are filled with all of these people that have gone before us, and we're on the, we're on the track, and we're running, and they're, they're cheering us on. Now, the Bible's very clear that we're never to engage the spirits of dead people. Saul tried that in the Old Testament, and Samuel actually showed up and scared everybody. But the Bible is very clear we communicate and we pray and we engage with Jesus. Whatever else he's got going on up there is fine. But I believe with all my heart that, that there's one, there's continuity in our life between what we experience now and what we will experience for eternity. That the way that God has wired you, the way that he's created you uniquely, the art isn't just to ob obliterate that when you die and, and create some, someone else or something else. That he's wired you and given you the purpose and the talents and the gifts and the passions you have for, for a reason. 
And part of that happens on earth here, but part of it, I believe, is going to be an eternity of expressing and exploring the deep purposes and passion and the vision that he's given you and I. And so that's kind of what we talked about, talked about this week. Um, today, I want to go one step further down the road, and we're not going to get into all of the semantics about uh, timelines and what if this happens here and then. And I, what I want to do is focus on one thing. And what is going to happen with the return of Jesus to this earth? Now, scholars have big words they use like amillennialism and premillennialism and postmillennialism and people uh, pontificate for hours on hours about, you know, the sequence of events. But what is clear from the New Testament and actually the Bible as a whole, whole is that the primary passion of the writers was to express the reality that Jesus is coming back to this earth again. It doesn't really matter when or how the sequence of its fits in together. The point is that he's coming back. And I remember as a young kid, um, my dad saying, you know, I, I'm not, I don't believe in pre-tribulation or post. I believe in the pan theory and that it'll all pan out in the end, right? And, and that's kind of true, right? Like, it doesn't really matter if we have to endure tribulation or if we get raptured before. What, like, those are all sort of sidebar to the, the, the major thrust of the New Testament from Paul and Peter and the disciples and John was to call people to the reality that Jesus was going to return. And that return would instigate, would initiate new heaven and new earth. So let's just take a look at a couple of things. And we're not going to get completely into the... Um, the semantics of everything, and, and I'm, I'm trying to discipline myself, my not to bring up, you know, 700 verses and notes, but just let's keep it on the, you know, something we can remember here. But I wanna, want you to turn with me to Second Peter. And Second Peter, chapter three, verse 10, says this. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Verse 11, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live today, today here and now, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And he goes on in verse 14, and so dear friends, once while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. I just want to talk about this for a little bit because this verse, and there's, there's many others on both sides of the coin we're going to talk about today, but this verse is one that, that strikes this image and this idea in our mind, and, and I grew up kind of thinking this, this strikes this idea that, 
that when Christ returns and God recreates the heaven and the earth, it's going to be, be a complete annihilation of it, a, a, a total and complete destructive annihilation, and then out of nothing, he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. The thing is, that's not exactly what, what Peter was saying. And if you dig into the Greek a little bit, it's not so much that God is going to send a destructive fire and destroy the earth, but it's actually through the fire's refining process that he's going to renew and, and build and remake the earth. It's a massive, massive distinction here. And one of the things that I believe, as we talked about in Revelation, the three things the enemy wants to do. He wants to blaspheme God, his people, and the new heaven and new earth, the, the kingdom of God, the throne room of God. If God had to destroy everything completely, if God had to destroy you and I completely, and earth and the cosmos and the universe completely, he would have failed. The enemy would have won. The enemy would have so tainted God's creation that it was unredeemable. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that Jesus, through the blood that he shed on the cross, cannot redeem. And that includes us, and that includes his creation. And so when Peter's first talking about this, if you actually go back to chapter 2, Peter is talking in context, and the metaphor he uses is the flood in Noah's day. And so in Noah's day, God sent this huge flood, and, and this flood destroyed the earth, but the earth wasn't, wasn't dissolved in nothingness. This flood covered the earth. The, you know, archaeologists believe that, that, that it's quite possible before the flood, there were no, not the continents that we have now, and, and there was, wasn't rain, and there, you know, the earth probably looked a lot different, and that the cataclysmic event of the flood, the the furious and ferocious power of it shifted. The tectonic and the globe was forever changed. But it wasn't replaced with something totally new. And that's sort of the analogy that, that Peter is using here. That God in his plan and in his purpose for the new heaven and new earth is not to annihilate you and I and what he's made. Remember, if we jump way back to Genesis 1, as God created the heavens and earth and the cosmos and all of that stuff, he said that it was good, that he was pleased with it. When he created man and woman, he was pleased with them. He created us out of the dust of earth. We were made for the earth. We weren't made for some ethereal, disembodied place. God's original plan and purpose was that we would rule the earth with him. And from Genesis on to Revelation, we see God laying out his plan to restore and renew us to himself. Not to annihilate us or fundamentally change us mentioned last week that um, a few years ago when our, our family went through a season of just horrific death, unexpected death, and within two or three months, four or even five close family members died suddenly. 
And it, it was a season where you didn't know what was up and what was down. And if, and if you've gone through that, you know what it's like. And I just, I, I, I so vividly remember as in that season, we, when, my, when my best friend and my brother-in-law passed away, we flew out to Alberta where he was living and, and we got, got there. And, and ironically enough, um, most of the pastors of their church were overseas doing mission work. And so there was nobody really there at the outset to, to take care of the family. And so, so guess what? That was my job. So not only was I grieving one of my best friends and my brother-in-law, but somehow through this series of events, God was using me to pass the whole family. And I remember in that season feeling like, I don't know how I'm gonna even get through the next few days, let alone weeks and months after. And I, I got hold of this book that's inspired me. And I mentioned, mentioned it last week, Heaven by Randy Elkhorn. I highly recommend it. It's not stories about people who have gone to heaven. It's actually uh, like a 600 page book on what the Bible says about heaven. Anyway, I, I read this book and God started, started to open my eyes to the truth that continuity exists. And when I would hear people just grieving and well-meaning say, we're so sad that, that oh, we'll never get to know Noah's daughter. I went, no, that's not true. That's not the hope that God has put in the Bible for us. I believe in the continuity of our lives after death. I believe that in some way, in some fashion, that he actually understands and sees what's happening in his little daughter's life. She wasn't born yet when he was killed in the car accident. She was in her mother's womb in the driver or the, the passenger seat of the car. But I believe the hope that God gives us, the promise he gives us, is that what we experience here on earth, these relationships that are so important to us, won't just be obliterated and wiped away. I actually believe that for an eternity, my brother-in-law and his daughter will get to experience deep, deep relationship. That the things that they've gone through and that she's gone through in her life won't, won't be lost for eternity. But it'll be a building block that they just continually build on top of. So God has to completely annihilate you and I in this world. Then the devil's won. I believe that's one of the, the lies that he wants to get us to believe about God that God isn't actually powerful enough to overcome the effects of sin and death on this earth. That God somehow had no recourse for sin in Genesis. That God somehow had no response. The devil wants you to believe that he's an equal arch enemy of God, but the truth is he's nowhere even close to an equal. The truth is, is that God hasn't lost. And that what is unfolding in our lives today and heads through history is part of his plan to restore and renew what was stripped, dripped, and taken away from us. 
I believe that the enemy wants us to believe in this same lie that if God isn't capable or sufficient to renew what was lost, if he's got to obliterate it, then it means for your life and my life that there's things in our life that God can't redeem and can't restore. And the enemy wants us to believe in our, our life that there's certain lines that we cross, there's certain places we go that we, we tread outside of God's power and ability to restore and renew. And what we see, what we see through God's plan for a new heaven and a new earth is that everything that we go through, through every struggle we face, every trial we face, the worst things in your life and my life are still renewable and redeemable by the presence of Jesus and the power of the blood that he shed on the cross. There's nothing you can do or I can do that God cannot redeem and restore and renew. There's no fractured relationship there's nothing that you can do privately and in secret. nothing that you can do that places you outside of God's power to renew and restore. There's no one on this earth that is so corrupt and so dysfunctional and so evil that God has to just, just wipe out. There's no one. But the enemy wants to trick us into believing that we're a lost cause, that there's nothing really to hope for. Such a cute puppy. He really is. <laughs> My kid loves that little puppy. Anyway. And so I believe that this is so important for us to understand. As we read in Roman, Roman, I want to re just, just read this again. Just one part of it for you. Romans 8. He starts out like this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. But Paul isn't saying, you know, what you're going through now, just suck it up. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. He's not saying that. He's not minimizing what's happening in your life. He's simply saying, you know, if, if, if the weight of what you're going through is like the rock of Gibraltar kind of thing, it's massive, it's huge, it's weighty, it's heavy, it's oppressive. What God has in store is like the planet, you know, Saturn comparison. It's ginormous. It doesn't even work on the same scale. And that even though what we face in our life today, it hurts. There's pain. There's heartache. There's trouble. There's sadness. There's grief. There's loss. All those things. God isn't diminishing that in your life and my life. He's saying, look, I know it's hard. I know it's a struggle right now. I know you're just scraping by to make ends meet. I know you're string in your marriage. I know you're struggling with your kids. I know you don't know what to do. I know you're struggling with work and finances. I know that. I get it. I know it. But just keep going because what I, what I have waiting for you is infinitely better than what you're experiencing now. What I have waiting for you is so much more fulfilling. And then, and then Paul's on to say, I love this, this, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future. That phrase, waiting eagerly, is one word in the Greek, and it's actually a very forceful 
very intentional word that Paul uses. And the waiting eagerly in the original Greek is actually, um, the, it's actually sort of meant to conjure up this idea of, of, of us stretching out our neck, neck heads to kind of to, to see over something that we can't see yet. It's actually like, you know, if you picture yourself when you're a kid and you go to a hockey game or, you know, whatever it is, you're like, you're just stretching and you're eagerly trying to see what's going on. And the Bible says that, that all of creation is doing that. They're, they're longing to see God restore and renew what was taken away from them. And we're going to talk next week about what the new earth and the new heaven are going to, going to be like. But, but just know that God has wired us to long for home. Just like Greg said this morning, you know, it's awesome being away and it's awesome being on holidays. But for some reason, just love coming home. And I believe that God has placed in our DNA this homing signal. And sometimes we don't even know what it's for, but we just, we're longing for something out there in the future. We're longing for home. And the Bible says that all of creation, all of it, not some of it, not a few animals, not a few plants, all of it, that word all in the original Greek encompasses the whole universe and cosmos. Everything that God has made is eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus and the restoration of God's heart and his plan. And yet so often in our life, when we think about heaven and what's coming next, we have, have these very apathetic, anticlimactic, pedantic thoughts about what heaven will be like. When the rocks and the trees and the mountains and the birds and the fish and all of that stuff is so desperately waiting for it. The enemy's tri tricked into believing what's coming next is not really worth our time or our attention. So the Bible says that at a certain time, we're going to recreate the heavens and the earth. We're going to talk about it next week, but that the kingdom of God is going to come down down here. Just let that sink in. We're not going up for eternity. The kingdom of heaven is coming down. And God's plan for restoration in your life and in my life and on this earth will be fulfilled. And so does it matter what we do today? Yes. Yes. Does it matter what happens with the loss and the sorrow and the pain we feel today? Yeah, because Jesus has a plan to, to bore it all. When Jesus was on the cross and had the thief on his left and right, and the one thief said, you know, forgive me. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That word paradise in the Greek it's actually a very specific word. word. Only used a few times in the New Testament, but that word actually means a walled garden. 
And what it was reminiscent of for the people that would have heard it in Jesus's time were the gardens in the palace gardens, the Eastern rulers of their day. And these gardens, these high-walled gardens would, would be a lavish, extravagant places where they would host parties and banquets and, and roll out the red carpet for their friends. We have, you know, orchards and vineyards and all kinds of animals. When Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise, it wasn't this free-range wilderness experience. It was no You'll be with me in a, in a place that I've created it and designed for your pleasure and our purpose together. Jesus created heaven, you and me. And all we need to do, all we need to do is humble ourselves and trust him. Say, Jesus, I acknowledge without you, I, I am destined for depravity. I'm destined for hell. But with you, Jesus, with what you did on the cross, I can find my place in eternity with you, Andrew. Not, not someone else, not a disembodied spirit, but me with all the things that he's wired me to love and want to do and fulfill in eternity in his presence, walking out purposes that he's put in my heart and in your heart. Relationships restored and renewed. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe, believe the lie that God isn't big enough to renew and remake what was once destroyed in the fall with sin and death. Don't believe the lie that the enemy speaks over your life, that there's things that you've done that, that, that forbid you from ever receiving God, God's renewal and his grace and his forgiveness. Don't believe the lie that what's waiting for us on the other side of this life we're currently living is somehow trite and boring and fundamentally unimportant. Don't believe those lies. Believe the truth that God's heart is always for renewal and restoration and he has the power and the might and the wisdom and the authority and the understanding to do it. And if he can do it on this earth, then he can do it in your heart and in my heart. So the things that have been broken and distorted and twisted, we don't have to live with them for eternity. And when God remakes the new heaven and the new earth, those things that are fractured and broken will be made whole in his presence. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory at mp.church and tell us 
how God has been working in your life lately.